You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Today I do have the privilege of sharing in our sermon series from 1 Corinthians, which we've titled United in Christ. Do you think we could say that in unison, or is that... Too, too hard to try. Let's try it. United in Christ. United in Christ. The body of Christ, the church, that is us. Uh, we've been in this for a few weeks. Last Sunday, Pastor Brad was in chapter 3, sharing about division in the church, which is the opposite of unity. And so this morning, we're obviously continuing with that theme of unity, and we'll see what chapter 4 uh, has for us. We have a healthy chunk of scripture, the entire chapter. That's what we'll be reading. So if you have a Bible... You can find that letter of Paul, 1 Corinthians, and um, we'll be reading all of chapter 4. This is Paul speaking. He says, a person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It's the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring both to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for, for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For what makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you haven't received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we also could reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in the last place, like men condemned to die. We've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, for you have had, for you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about all the ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in the church. 
Now some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. God, I thank you again for this word that you've given us, for this text, and that it is alive through your spirit. And as we listen, I pray that you would speak through me so that you may be glorified in this place. Amen. So that was a lot, a whole chapter. Um, there's a lot of themes that we could dwell on. Uh, but for this morning, the theme that I, or the lens, I should say, with which I want us to have read and consider chapter four is that of individualism, the issue of individualism in the church. And this is interesting because, well, the Corinthian church clearly struggles with individualism, and I, th I think Pastor Greg mentioned it in his introduction. I believe that the contemporary church struggles all the more with this issue as we have through time become more and more individualized. The Greco-Roman world put an emphasis on the individual, but here today, our emphasis on individualism is above and beyond what they could have ever imagined. And so we should relate very closely to what Paul is explaining to the Corinthian church. So the question that we'll start with is, what is individualism? And ironically, the answer to that question depends on who you ask. What is individualism? It depends who you ask. What do I mean when I say individualism? Well, for today, I would say that individualism is the belief that the self is autonomous or superior to the collective or to the group, right? That the self is autonomous or superior to the collective. Individualism is the belief that I am autonomous. I am primarily responsible for creating my own reality and sustaining my own well-being. Individualism does value community, but only to the extent that it validates the individual. It promotes individual rights and freedoms above and beyond other relationships and responsibilities. Now, to be clear, being an, what I'm not saying is that being an individual is a bad thing. Scriptures teach us that each of us as individuals are important, valuable, created in the image of God. Jesus talks about the parable of the, 90, of the 100 sheep, one of which gets lost. Well, what does Jesus do? He leaves the 99 to seek and save the one, right? And each of us are that one. And so we, as individuals, are important, more important than we can actually even comprehend. But where we go wrong is when we begin to place a disproportionate emphasis on our individuality, and we allow our individuality to distort our worldview to such a place where we start thinking that the universe revolves around me. This is a natural tendency, especially in cultures like ours. And it's a problem, because in the kingdom of heaven, we learn that actually, God is the center of the universe. I'm not. It's God that's at the center of the universe. And so this is why it's a problem for the church to be individualistic. So let's revisit the passage. Um, again, if you have a Bible, I'll, I'll just kind of be jumping through really quickly. 
not so much rereading it. But Paul begins the passage by explaining that he's talking about himself as an apostle. He says, we're like managers, right? We don't take pride in, in the ownership of what we do because we don't own it. We're simply dealing with what God has given us as a responsibility. And we do it to the best of our ability. So, so as Christian leaders, first rule is, it's not for your glory, it's for God's. That's what Paul's saying. They're managers of the mysteries that God has entrusted them with. It's not for personal or selfish gain, it's for God's glory. So the motive of the leader is not individualized, but for the purpose of the kingdom that God has called them to work in. And then in verse 3, we have the issue of Christians judging other Christians wrongly or prematurely. Now, there will be a time where we talk about judging one another correctly, just to complicate things a little bit, but that's not for this morning. Um, you see, when, when we think that uh, we are sovereign, then suddenly we have the responsibility, or so we think, to judge right from wrong for ourselves, right? If we're the authority on things as individuals, then it is our job to point fingers at everyone and start blaming and criticizing unfairly. And Paul says no to this, right? Although he says if someone wants to criticize him, go ahead, <laughs> because he's not aware of anything that he's even done wrong. But either way, it's God who he fears, and it's God who will judge, not humans. So don't criticize one another. Uh, this reminds me of uh, James chapter 4, which says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Again, so you see, if, if we're individualized, we'll, we will be led to a place where we feel justified in criticizing others, whether it's fair or not. But James and Paul agree that this is God's job to do, and he is perfect in it. So don't waste time running around pointing fingers at one another. We relinquish that control of judge, the position of judge to God, and this is a good thing for us to do. So the, there's the judgmental mindset. That's a manifestation of individualism. Uh, and then in verse 6, Paul says something interesting about going beyond what is written going beyond what is written. We aren't exactly clear what Paul refers to when he says this, but I think we can take it essentially to mean going beyond the simple, um, clear gospel truth, or in our context, going outside of the truth of Scripture, right? Extra-biblical teaching, Jesus plus something, or so on. Now, for Christians, for us, this temptation is humongous, actually, to go outside what is written. DIY theology is a very common and very accepted form of faith. Where we, Again, because if, if it's up to me to determine and decide what I believe and what's true, then I have to piece it all together rather than submit to the authority of God or the authority of other leaders. So it's incredibly popular to do this. We feel entitled to it, to select and cherry-pick from Scripture as we want to, and then to look outside of Scripture to other teachers which, who perhaps uh, validate what we think already and can confirm what we feel. 
and so on. A common sign of individualism, but it has detrimental effects, which Paul gets into, right? He talks about pride and ego, the prideful spirit, which the Corinthian church seems to be struggling with. This is because, apparently, their personal theologies have become so important to them that they use them as a stepping stool on which to elevate themselves above others, right? And to look down on others, to even look down on the apostles like Paul and think of them as less. Paul asked them, and I love verse 7, what makes you so superior? <laughs> what makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? You see, in our individualism, we believe the myth that we have created our own realities, that I'm the one who's built the life that I have, that I'm important or not based on what I can do or produce or think or build or create, right? But Paul says this, this thinking of a self-made Christian is a myth. It's simply not true. Uh, again, in James uh, verse 1, it says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who doesn't change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth. It's not our choice. It's not our doing. It's from him. This goes against the myth of the sovereign self, which says that it's me who perceives the truth. I gain and pursue my own blessing. I am my own salvation, and so on. And so as I say these things for your average Christian, we know on the surface, of course, salvation comes from Jesus, right? And God's word, of course, is perfect and holy and true. But what we may not realize and what I'm getting at is that our individualized culture does affect our attitudes and our hearts, even though probably in our heads we know better. Every good and perfect gift is from above. What do we have that we have not received from God? The answer to this question is nothing. Nothing. And so we're humbled, and verses 9 to 13, uh, Paul uh, speaks of his humility as an apostle, all the difficulties that he endures, his utter humility. And uh, this is interesting because he's setting up the solution that he's going to provide, the practical solution. Right? He's illustrating the, the, the humble life, and he's setting up the solution for the church. And it's very interesting. I like in verse 14, he says, I'm not writing this to shame you. Because you can imagine, perhaps, that they are starting to feel a little bad. Because <laughs> I'm not writing this to shame you. Well, why is he writing it? He says, to warn you, as my dear children... For you may have countless instructors in Christ, instructors, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And if you're a person to highlight or circle something in your Bible, highlight verse 16. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. I urge you to imitate me. Verse 16 is the practical solution to a church divided against itself, to an individualized Christian culture. 
We can set our eyes on leaders as examples to follow, to find an example to follow and imitate them. Paul urges the church to imitate him. Now, if you're like me, right away, your imagination is creating a list of reasons why Paul has no right to tell me to follow him. Why, why would Paul tell, demand that I follow him? I'm supposed to follow Jesus. And in my DIY Christian theological mindset, I want, I want to be the one who chooses who I follow. I don't want Paul to tell me to do it. In fact, it's fine if I follow him, but I should have the choice, the ability to choose to follow him, not have him tell me to. I don't like that. There's actually a number of good reasons that Paul can and should tell the church to imitate him. And he's already listed a bunch of them in the first part of this passage that we read this morning. His servant leadership, his humility. We've learned that there's no such thing as a self-made Christian. Even though we like to imagine that I'm independent and I'm free, really I'm, I'm not, simply. What's more is we desire good leadership. We seek out leaders to follow naturally. And Paul actually has a good point in calling the Christian church to follow his example, not because he's a perfect leader, because no human is, but because he says to have a spiritual father like Paul is priceless. To have someone who is committed to the service of the kingdom of Jesus and who cares for us as a worthy example is someone worth following. In Philippians 3, he talks more about this. He says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, reaching towards what is ahead, I pursue my goal, the prize promised by God's heavenly fall in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained and here he says again, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Paul is moving towards the goal, and so we should follow him in his movement. And we do this, again, I say we're, we're attracted to leaders, we need good leaders in our lives, and we do this when we have a goal. I was thinking back to when I was younger, and I had time to sit with my guitar and practice. I wanted to get better, right? So what did I do? I found a leader who could take me there, right? Rather than, although sometimes I was stubborn and individualistic, I was smart enough to find teachers who would take me to the next level rather than being offended that they were better than me or something like that, I actually submitted to their authority because I knew they could take me there. I wanted to get better at playing the guitar. And this is what a good leader will do, is they'll show us 
what we need to do. We can watch what they're doing and copy it instead of in our own arrogance trying to always pioneer our own path. So Paul isn't being presumptive. Paul's offering a valuable opportunity for his church, for us to observe the practice of a life of a Christian who follows Jesus with everything. So we, the church, need to be more willing to submit to the Christ-like examples of others. Let us no longer resist and despise the authority of leaders, but actually seek them out intentionally to observe from men and women of faith, to no longer be prideful and proud of what we've built in our DIY theology, but instead be humble enough to look to one another as examples that we too can learn from and follow. The reason we need to do this is because our imitation will lead to transformation. Yes, it rhymes. Deal with it. <laughs> imitation leads to transformation. It does. You see, it's, it's wonderful to have uh, instructors. It's good to learn intellectually from whomever. Paul even says this. But that's not all, right? For me as a guitar player, I could learn all the theory I could possibly cram into my brain, which isn't very much, um, or, or, or have uh, you know, a, a deep grasp of all the technical stuff. But if I'd never actually played a gig, so to speak, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be a real musician. It, it would just be in my head. And believe me, if you go on forums online, you will find tons of people like this. <laughs> and it's so annoying. Uh, but that's a whole other thing. But you know what I'm saying, right? People who are prideful and arrogant in what they think they know, but they haven't practiced it. They haven't put it into real-world uh, situations that have caused them to grow. So instead of being like that, let us look to those who are practicing, people whose footsteps we can follow in, and in doing this, be transformed, be challenged, and to grow instead of simply growing our egos. This is because theology, faith, and practice without works is dead, right? And so the invitation to follow Paul's example is an invitation to participate in this life after Jesus. Imitation is not theoretical, it is doing. So, so we can follow Paul's example, an invitation to learn by doing. To no longer just think about the gospel, but to observe it at work in his life. To see it in action, in the life of someone who takes it very seriously. And in imitating them, we will be transformed. So for us, obviously, we have the example of the Apostle Paul and other apostles in, in the New Testament. But I do believe that we must also do this in our lives today by observing Christians who also take the gospel seriously, whose lives are also filled with the Holy Spirit, who are also ministering in humility, people worth following. 
In Philippians 4.9, again, Paul says, Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Notice the first word, do. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me. Put it into practice. Copy me, is what he's saying, and the peace of God will be with you. I don't know about you, but I need the peace of God to be with me. So the question I I, uh, offer to us to pray about, to reflect on, to bring to the Lord is simply, who are you following? You can't say Jesus, (laughs) because that's a given. If you're a Christian, yes, we are following Jesus. Ultimately, that's what all of this is about. And Paul says that, that already. It's about Jesus. But who, what other human would you look to and imitate? Perhaps, perhaps you haven't thought about this. Uh, so maybe the, the, the first question, the, the pretext would be, uh, who am I already unintentionally following and imitating? Right? Who, who is influencing my choices or my behaviors or lifestyle, my mindset, my beliefs? And then you can ask, who should I be imitating? As we ask this, it's going to be difficult for us, right? To look outside of our individualism. To be humble, to submit to those who we would rather criticize, right? Fellow believers who are also sinners just like us. But as we read this morning, and as we receive God's word, we will see his grace, that the relationships around us are valuable, and that we all have things to learn from one the good examples of one another, and to dwell on those. Now, of course, there's a flip side to this as well that I just quickly want to mention, where Christians should also be thinking about who is imitating me, Right? who's imitating my example. And this is obviously more slanted towards the mature Christians in the room, but it's not strictly for those, like no one's off the hook here. In fact, uh, the the scriptures are clear that this uh, thinking is for young people as well, to question who is imitating young people. In 1 Timothy 4.12, it says, don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Set an example. Titus 2 says, In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. So really what I've been talking about this morning is what we call discipleship, right? Discipleship. And again, are we disciples of Jesus? Of course. But in discipleship, we also follow other disciples who are following Jesus. Some people have suggested that the church has experienced and is experiencing a crisis of discipleship, a crisis of discipleship, and the, and the casualties are all around. And I would say, in light of what we've been talking about this morning, our individualism 
is a large factor in that crisis, right? Where we think we're better off on our own, we have more of our own authority than anybody else ever could, and so we're just going to follow, it's just me and Jesus, right? And, and there's no community involved, there's no relationship, there's no submission to one another, there's no learning from those who have a good example. This causes all kinds of problems. So I do not know the best way if there is a discipleship crisis. I don't have the answer to solving the problem, but I will say that we can begin with the relational aspect of the body of Christ, where we could be close enough to one another to actually know and imitate each other's good faith. To submit to Jesus and to the, uh, commu- the, the, the church body in this way. To be united as Jesus prayed and calls us to. To hear him through his word, but through the good example of one another as well. So as I said, all of this, of course, is actually about following Jesus It is all about him, all glory to him. We serve him, leaders, followers, all of us. It's about Jesus. But let us look around us and see others who are following Jesus and say, bless you, I see Jesus in you, and I want to imitate the ways that you are following him in your life. Now, having said all this, And as we think about this and pray about this, communion is just a wonderful way to summarize and conclude what we've been talking about. Uh, Because as we take communion, we are blessed to essentially agree with one another that we follow Jesus, that Jesus' death and resurrection is the solution, yes, to individualism and cultural problems, but it's completely the solution to sin and death, right? Jesus is the answer. He died on the cross. The best part is, after his death, after his burial, after three days, Jesus rose again. He's alive, isn't he? And so he's with us as we walk. His spirit dwells in this place as we praise him and as we submit again to him. And so in communion, we are united together in the shadow of the cross to receive God's grace and to thank him for it.